Well, that's all very exciting. I hope that uh, you are excited about that too. You're here, so that means that you set your clocks last night, right? Uh, Carolyn and I are living in our trailer. So we live in about 200 square feet. And last night I set out to change the clocks. And would you believe that in 200 square feet, including computers, cell phones, watches, we have 13 clocks to change? Yeah, that doesn't count the car and the truck. Um, So I lost an hour last night because of the time change. And I lost a second hour changing clocks. So, uh, welcome. I hope that you will be praying for our elders. That's exciting news. I'm probably the only man in the room who's praying that God will take him out of his job. So, uh, I want to be out of a job here. So, we praise the Lord for that. And I hope that you'll be praying for the elders and the search team. Actually, the search team have kind of passed it off now. So, uh, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate those people and those men and women and the time and energy and their resources that they have put into this. So, um, yes, the search team. We want to go back into Galatians this morning. And uh, before we do that, let's pray together, all right? Our Father, we do thank you for these exciting days, these exciting things that are happening with young people going off to do ministry. And God, we, we don't know how you're going to grow them, but we anticipate that. For Josh and, and uh, for James as they go to a faraway country. And, uh, we just thank you, Father, that they're available to go and celebrate a job well done there. For, Father, a, a candidate on the horizon, perhaps, or, or what we want to do right now, Father, together is to pray that you would shower your wisdom and your spirit upon our elders and our search team. I know, Father, that it's mostly in the hand of the elders right now, but we pray, Father, that you will make very clear to them what your will is. And we pray that in the process of that, Father, We will see great and mighty things happen at Northwest Hills. We're excited, and and it's good to be excited, Father, in what you're doing. Father, today we thank you for your grace. It's a concept that we don't understand fully. It's a concept that we are not inclined to. And it's a concept that we always want to tweak a little bit. So, Father, today, we pray that as we learn 
from the Apostle Paul that you would teach us more about your grace. Help us to live in your grace. Help us, Father, to walk in your grace. Help us to work in your grace. Help us, Father, to understand that every breath we take is because of your grace. So today, Father, as we take another look at Galatians chapter 1, we pray that you will lead us and teach us along the way here. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about the integrity of the gospel. Uh, I think probably uh, this issue of the gospel is the most attacked thing in all of the universe. Um, We are saved by the grace of God. Remember we said that the Apostle John in his book tells us we are saved by believing in Jesus. He uses that word, believe, 93 times in the gospel. And uh, each of the gospel writers, each of the writers of the New Testament declare that we are saved by the grace of God. In the past message, the Apostle Paul had to defend his apostleship. Remember, the, those people that came into Galatia said, oh, he's not really an apostle. So he had to declare why he was an apostle, where he got his message. Remember, he got it straight from the resurrected Christ. And then uh, he had to define the gospel. And remember, we said he defines the gospel in terms of in terms of a price, a purpose, and a plan. And under the price, remember, we said that um, he defines the gospel as the death of Christ being sacrificial and substitutionary. Now today, he's going to defend this gospel. And I think the reality of things is that grace is the most attacked doctrine on the planet. See, it doesn't matter what cult you are talking about, what they want to attack is the doctrine of grace. It doesn't matter what other religion outside of Christianity you are talking about. You always have to do something to get saved. Now, let me make a clarification here. When I get up and say to you that we are saved by grace plus nothing, I mean that the only way you and I can get saved is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And there's no work we can do to make that happen. But then sometimes I will say to you, We need to live our lives in a way that honors God. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying live in order to honor God so you can get saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying live in order to honor God 
and become more sanctified in the spirit of God. Sanctification is it's a positional thing. So there's a point at which you are as sanctified as you are ever going to get before God. God views you through a film of the blood of Jesus. And what he sees on the other side is an absolutely perfect, sanctified, holy person. But there is what we call progressive. That's positional sanctification. There is what we call progressive sanctification. And the reason why the pastor may come up alongside of you and slip his arm around you and say, I don't think you ought to be doing this or I think you ought to be doing that is because he wants you to progress in your sanctification. He's not asking you to get saved. So the, 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 the New Testament does teach that we live in a way that glorifies God, but for the purpose of our sanctification and his glory, not for the purpose of our salvation. Heresy is a big problem in our world. And whenever there is heresy, uh, the disease of heresy uh, spreads and causes great damage in churches, especially if it's not curbed, if it's not crushed. And whenever you go outside of Christianity or you go into any of the cults of Christianity, you will find out this concept of grace is what they attack. I I think that the reality of it is there's an instinct inside of us that wants us, first of all, to do something for our salvation. Uh, Let me say also, there's an instinct inside of us that doesn't lead us to grace. We we are not inclined to grace, are we? We we don't want to give our enemy grace, do we? Uh, I've heard myself say some things about the enemy of our country and the enemy of the church and that don't reflect grace. Because we're not inclined to grace as individuals. Grace brings damage. I'm sorry, heresy brings damage. It will destroy the unity in a church. It will infect itself into the people and into the church. There is a constant attempt to mix grace with obedience or with works. And sometimes A correction is needed. And Paul decides in this text to protect the integrity of the gospel. So let's go to our text. And I'm going to talk first of all about the instability of the Galatians. The instability of the Galatians. I'm going to divide that into two aspects. First of all is the distortion... uh, Uh, the desertion, I mean, for another gospel. And then there is the distortion of the true gospel. Let's talk about the uh, desertion for another gospel. And let's take a look at our text. I want you to see, Paul says, I am amazed. Whoa. Paul is saying, I can't believe it. It's as though Paul is saying, Are you kidding me? 
There was not a long period of time between the time that Paul established the church in Galatia until he writes this letter. And in that short period of time, the Judaizers had come in. Let me tell you what we know for sure. We know they were being influenced by Judaizers who were saying, you not only have to have grace to get saved, you have to have circumcision to get saved. You've got to do something to get saved. There is what we're not completely sure about, but we're suspicious of. There was also an influence of Gnosticism coming into the church. And Gnosticism was, uh, was a kind of uh, over the entire early church. You see it in all through the New Testament. You see the authors uh, attacking the issues of Gnosticism. That's a whole other story. But the reality of it is uh, what is being taught in the Galatian church is partly because of Gnosticism because like all other religions, it was creating a salvation by works. So Paul is saying, I'm amazed. I'm flabbergasted. I'm blown away that you are so quickly deserting. Circle the word quickly and circle the word deserting. Him who called you by the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. For a different gospel. And then notice the next words. Which is really not another. It's not another gospel. And what Paul means by that is that you have been influenced by a different gospel. But make sure you understand, there isn't another gospel besides the real gospel. There isn't really another one. There isn't really a different gospel. There's only one. And that's what he means when he says, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you. Circle the word disturbing. And want to distort, circle the word distort, the gospel of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is coming to say, I'm here to defend the real gospel. And their desertion for another gospel is seen in verse 6. Notice the word quickly. That's the same word the Apostle Paul uses in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 22. The word is takaos, which when he says, don't lay hands, don't ordain any young men too quickly. That's the word. Uh, um, and when he comes to deserting, uh, that's the word that is used in the New Testament for a defector, for a traitor. It literally means to switch sides. And they deserted the true gospel for a false gospel. And then when you come down to disturbing you, that's a word that is quite interesting. It's the same word that is used in Matthew 14 when the disciples were on the boat with Jesus and it says they were afraid. They were confused. Uh, They were disturbed 
That's the word. It's also the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod learned that there, would, there was another king born. It says Herod was disturbed. You bet he was. That's the word that is used here. They were disturbed. So there is this desertion for another gospel. Why would the Galatians be attracted to a false gospel if they were really, truly gripped by the truth of the grace of Christ? Why does that happen? I think we find ourselves in situations where people drift away from God to a false gospel of works. We see it in our own day. I think the most telling, the the most powerful illustration of this is a friend of mine. He was a pastor. Uh, He's now home with the Lord. Uh, But he was a pastor of an evangelical church. I won't tell you who. Uh, uh, but he was a friend of mine in the Portland area. And this fellow was, he loved to get along with God. He enjoyed getting along with God. I enjoyed that. Uh, when I was in Portland pastoring every Thursday, my secretary knew I didn't take any calls. I was sitting in a lounge chair out someplace by the Sandy River, just being alone with God. No, I didn't have a fishing pole. Uh, I was just talking to God, reading my Bible, talking to God every Thursday afternoon for three or four hours. Well, this fellow liked to do that. And the place he would go to do that was Mount Angel at the Abbey. Now, if you know uh, at Mount Angel, the town of Mount Angel is a, a, a Benedictine Abbey, part of the Roman Catholic Church. And they have a wonderful guest house there. It's a wonderful place to go and be quiet with God. But my friend would go there, and he would be quiet with God, but he would also interact with some of the priests, and he would watch what was going on. And pretty soon he thought, I like that. I like being able to do something. And so he made the decision to change from being an evangelical pastor to a Roman Catholic Benedictine priest. And he, in fact, had to have a special dispensation from Rome because he was a married man. And in the process, he he gave up grace, as we know it, for the sacraments. And he practiced the sacraments every day as a Benedictine priest. And in due time concluded that this is how God wanted him to get saved. How does that happen? And I have to tell you, I don't have the explanation for that. But the reality is, sometimes people, I have no question in my mind that he was saved. He's in heaven today, I believe. But he got deluded somehow. And that's what happened to the Galatian church. Let me explain also that a faith that is feebly held is easily dropped. See, God wants us to grow our faith. 
God wants us to make it hard and solid and firm. God wants us to be certain in our hearts and our minds about our relationship with him every day, every minute of every day. And as we have that certainty, we come to the place where nobody can take that away from us, no matter what. So we, we, the reason we want you to come to church is so you can grow. The reason we tell you not to do bad things and to do good things is so you can grow. The reason why we preach the word of God to you is so you can grow. So this faith gets stronger and it is not easily lost. We must never forget that the Christian life is a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's not about a set of doctrines. I love doctrine. I said to somebody this morning, I love to talk theology. There's nothing, there's nothing I would rather do than talk about superlapsarianism and the hypostatic union. But it's not about a set of doctrines. It's about a relationship. And that relationship can grow. It can get better and better by the day. And that's what Paul is after here. You cannot mix grace and works because one excludes the other automatically. Grace and doctrines don't go together. And if they do go together, the only way to make them fit is to make them fit within the context of that grace. Submitting to Christ, trusting him. And then let's take a look at the distortion of the true gospel. The word that he uses for distort here is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here and it's used in Acts 2.20. the, the word is metastrepho for what that's worth. It's metastrepho. And it means to turn something into the opposite character. And that's what they did here. They took grace, where you are saved by grace plus nothing, and they turned it into salvation by works, which is the opposite character of grace. And as a result... They made works the way you get saved. Remember, last time we preached in Galatians, we said the death of Christ was substitutionary. Here's something you want to remember always. There is no substitute for God's substitute. There is no substitute for God's substitute. He's already given us a substitute. If Jesus had not hung on the cross, I would have had to hang on the cross. If Jesus had not died on the cross and rose from the dead, I would have had to go to hell. That's all there is to it. There was no other option. But God gave a substitute. And as soon as I say, I have to do a sacrament to be saved, I'm adding a substitute to God's substitute. And it doesn't work that way. There is no substitute for God's substitute. The Judaizers had reversed the gospel. 
they came into the Galatian church. And they said, oh, you believe in Christ. That's great. We do too. Oh, you believe in grace. Uh, That's great. We believe in grace too. But let us tell you something that Paul didn't tell you. Something that will help in this process. And that is, if you get circumcised, then you can know for sure that you're saved. If you follow the doctrines of Judaism, then you can know, yeah, we believe in Christ. He's the Messiah. But the fact is, you can add this to it and be certain that you are saved. New substitutes to God's substitute. It can't work that way. Let's take a look at the conformity of all revelation. What I mean by the conformity of all revelation, I mean that anything that is preached has to conform to a standard. Anything that is taught has to conform to a standard. This here is the standard. This is where we want to go. That's why we use the Bible here. Any class you go to, uh, any sermon you listen to is going to come out of the Bible uh, at Northwest Hills. Um, that's the elders are all they always have their ear to the ground to make sure that the preacher that I always want somebody in my life to tell me that's why uh, me and Josh you know and uh, me and and the elders we we are with each other we are watching what's happening to make sure that the standard is being met there is a conformity to the standard let's look at the text Even though we, that is the Apostle Paul and those who were with him, or an angel from heaven, is that possible? But maybe, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you. So Paul said, we came and taught you the gospel of grace plus nothing. Now if anybody, even us, or even an angel comes and teaches you something contrary to that, The Apostle Paul says, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which we revealed, which which you received from us, let him be accursed. Circle the word accursed twice in that text. Um, It's an interesting word. It's actually uh, the Greek word anathema, anathema. Um, We say in the English language, he is an anathema. And what we mean by that is we mean people shun him. People don't want to be around him. Anathema is not an English word. We've, uh, We've adopted it, but it's actually a Greek word. And the Greek word doesn't mean to shun him. It means to curse him. It means to damn him forever. And so the Apostle Paul uses this word twice in this text to show us that anybody who preaches a gospel by works instead of grace plus nothing should be cursed and forever damned. That's what he is saying in this text. There is a conformity, and the conformity 
to preaching the gospel has to be in the context to what the Apostle Paul preached, what John preached, what Peter preached, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke preached. And that's the, that's the conformity, uh, the, the standard that all other preaching has to fit into. And so the Apostle says there's a reaction you ought to have to false teachers. I've given you two verses, one from Psalm 97 that says, you that love the Lord hate evil. Also from Romans 12, Paul himself said, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Paul is saying, react to this bad, wrong, evil teaching. Um, The contrary or the controversy here is not between one teacher and another. I want you to understand that. It's not about who the guy is. It's not about what color his hair is or what color his eyes are or what his denomination is or where he comes from. It's the difference between truth and error. That's the issue. It's the difference between truth and falsehood. That's what Paul is challenging. See, you can change the label on something, but it never alters the contents. You can take a bottle of poison and you can change the label on the poison, but it still remains poison. Up where we come from, I use gallons of Roundup every year. Um, You cannot believe the weeds we have in North Idaho. And they're not little. They're this high. And uh, the only way to kill them is to spray them with something so deadly. And when our grandchildren were little and they were running around in the shop and everything, I had to make sure that poison was out of their way. And the last thing I would do would be put a new label on it that says uh, orange juice, good to drink and leave it down where they can get it that's what's happening here, you understand these guys are coming in and, and feeding poison to the people so the test of a man's ministry is not his popularity, not even the miraculous signs and wonders that, he, that it does it is Is he faithful to the word of God? Is he going to teach that which the Bible teaches? Is he going to conform to the truth of the word of God? And if he does not, then he teaches falsehood. I had a friend. Uh, He was one of my best friends. Um... He was professor of Greek and New Testament at Western Seminary. His name was Dr. Paul Kaufman. He was also a member of Gateway Baptist Church. He was delighted when one of his former students came to be his pastor. Uh, That may be why I use so much Greek, uh, because I wanted to impress Paul. (laughs) Uh, We would meet every Wednesday morning over breakfast and we would read through the Greek New Testament and I remember those times 
when Paul would say, parse that word, and I, and I couldn't do it, and he'd just about come over the table at me. Um, but we became dear friends, and in 1985, he committed suicide. And the next morning, when I found him, and I went to his front door, there was an envelope taped to his front door with my name on it. Uh, among other things, I was the executor of his estate. And uh, in that envelope, among other things, was this. It is a calligraphied form in Greek of Second Timothy 2.2. And it says this. It says, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to faithful men who will teach them to others also. And I remember standing in front of that congregation at that memorial service, weeping. 15 years I'd been in the ministry by that time. And making a determination in my mind that this is what I will do. I will teach this book and nothing outside of this book. Sometimes we've had people say, would you come and do a seminar in this or do a seminar in that? Typically I say, no. No, if you want me to come and teach First John, I can do that. See? And that's why I love having a guy like Josh who we can bounce back and forth off of because the test of a man is whether or not he teaches this. It isn't whether he's good-looking like I am. It isn't whether he dresses well like I do. It, it's whether or not he teaches this. So let's take a look at the response of the Apostle Paul. The response of the Apostle Paul. Verse 10. He says this. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, he's not seeking the favor of men. And he, then he repeats it. He says, or am I striving to please men? No. No, he's not doing that either. He says, if I were still trying to please men, notice the word still, circle that. Because when he was with the Jewish religion, that's what he did. See, he would go kill Christians and his Jewish rabbi buddies would come up, pat him on the back and say, way to go, Paul, kill some more. That's what he wanted. The, he wanted the praise of men. But he said, even if that's what I was still doing, then I couldn't possibly be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He said, I am a bondservant of Christ. He states that almost at the beginning of every one of his letters. Romans, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Doulos, the word which means it's sort of like you're on a chopping block in chains being sold to a new master. And that's what Paul, how Paul viewed himself, that Jesus Christ was his master. And I want you to see that those who seek to please God only are invincible within. Once I made up my mind that every morning I would get out of bed and say, God, you own me today. 
I want to do what you want me to do. Boy, it's very seldom that anything ever gets me down because, because my God is saying, you just keep going. You're doing what I want you to do. I said to somebody this morning, they said, uh, you know, if we get a new pastor, you're out of here. I said, that's fine. That's what I want. That's why I came here was so that we could get a new guy here. And uh, I said, Carolyn and I have never sought a ministry. We wait for God. God brings them in. And so uh, true servants of Christ think and act independently. What I mean by that is they obey God only. The Apostle Paul said, all I want to see is a smile on the face of Jesus. All I want is to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. The great operas of our time were written in the 19th century. Um, I don't like the opera. For one thing, most of them are in Latin, and I'm sorry, uh, Italian, and I can't understand it. So unless Carolyn's sitting alongside of me telling me what's going on, then uh, my daughter loves the opera. She goes to the opera in Seattle. I don't like the opera. But most of the good operas were written in the 19th century. And there were two men, primarily. First of all was Rossini, and Rossini was the musical genius of the 19th century. Uh, The other one was Verdi, and Verdi was younger than Rossini. Rossini wrote 35 operas. Rossini wrote chamber music and religious music, and he even wrote instrumental music. Those of you that are musicians, you know that. Uh, Verdi was a young man, and he wrote his first opera in uh, near the middle of the 19th century, and it was performed in Florence, Italy for the first time. And the story goes that uh, Verdi was hiding behind a curtain off stage, and he was looking at the face of Rossini. the, The story says he didn't care whether the audience was cheering him or jeering him. He only wanted to see a smile come on the face of the master. And that's what Paul wanted. And I think that that's a beautiful response to this whole issue. And you know, my counsel to you today as we go to communion, and we're going to serve communion to you this morning, so just stay there and and hold on to it. We'll take it together. But, uh, But as you take communion this morning, maybe you want to say, there's a place in my life where I can live to see the smile of Jesus. There might be a place in my life. And you know, I'm always aware of the fact that people come in and they bring stuff, they bring hurts and they they bring pain and they bring frustrations and they bring attitudes. I want to tell you this morning that whatever's going on in your life, God loves you 
and he wants to own you. And he wants to take this thing in your life and use it to grow you and to glorify himself. We call that sanctification. So as you take communion this morning, maybe there's a place where you need to say, God, I'm going to, I want your smile. I'm going to live to honor you so I can see the smile of Jesus. So I might hear those words, good and well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today that you made such a substitute on our behalf. We are overwhelmed with your grace. Maybe one of the reasons we're overwhelmed with it is because in our old nature, we're not inclined to grace. So, Father, thank you for bringing a new concept into our lives. Allow us, Father, to depend on you, to walk with you, to look for the smile of Jesus, to not care about what other people think, but to only do and think and say those things which would bring a smile from the Lord Jesus. We'll thank you in his name. Amen.